Republican battle Congressman Matt Gates. Matt Gates was one of the very few members in the entire Congress who bothered to stand up against permanent Washington on behalf of his constituents. Matt Gates right now, he's a problem for the Democratic Party, and he could cause a lot of hiccups in passing of laws. So we're going to keep running those stories to keep hurting him. If you stand for the flag and kneel in prayer, if you want to build America up and not burn her to the ground, then welcome, my fellow patriots. You are in the right place. This is the movement for you. You ever watch this guy on television? It's like a machine. Matt Gates. I'm a canceled man in some corners of the internet. Many days I'm a marked man in Congress, a wanted man by the deep state. They aren't really coming for me. They're coming for you. I'm just in the way. Welcome back to Firebrand Live. We are simulcast streaming from room 1721 of the Longworth House Office Building on the Capitol Complex in our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. And we are living in wild times right now. Tim Ryan, the Democrat nominee for Senate in Ohio, is calling for the killing of the MAGA movement. And meanwhile, a pillow salesman in Minnesota at a Hardee's is being rounded up by the FBI. Meanwhile, the Globalist March continues, and that's where we will begin today. The Globalist American Empire is a wellspring of wokeness. This is the speech that everyone's talking about that uh, our guest Dr. Darren Beatty gave recently in Miami. Dr. Beatty is the founder, publisher of Revolver.News, a place we go frequently for a lot of the information you're not going to see on the mainstream media, but that directly impacts the quality of life that we all get to live every day in this country. Dr. Beatty, thank you so much for yet again joining us on Firebrand Live. Um, what is your argument about the American globalist empire and their relationship with wokeness? Well, first of all, many thanks for having me again. It's always an honor to be here. And as for this speech, just for the context, it was at a conference about national conservatism, uh, about nationalism and so forth. And so essentially what I addressed in the talk was a complication that I think is inherent in the prospect of American nationalism, which is that I think a lot of times people like to formulate our problems as though, oh, it's, it's America versus globalism or and by globalism it depends what that means but often people think that means international institutions supranational institutions for instance take the example of brexit which is not an american case but it's often uh, advanced as one of those quintessential um uh, nationalist achievements that uh, britain attained a sort of independence regained its sovereignty from the EU, which is this evil supranational institution. Now, I don't think Brexit is a bad thing, but I think it's important to remind ourselves that the real poison infecting Britain wasn't being imposed by EU bureaucrats or the UN or any kind of international institution. The poison in Britain was coming from Britain itself. The Rotherham rape, rape gangs that the authorities ignored because they were too afraid to be called racist. They didn't do that because EU bureaucrats were threatening them. They did that because this is a sickness that is inherent in the British culture, the British society, the British norms, and so forth. And so in a way, it's almost 
obfuscating the true nature of the problem to say, oh, we're British nationalists, therefore we're going against the EU. Well, that's nice, but a lot of the problems are inherent in Britain itself. And I think you see an analogous situation in the United States of America that complicates a lot of positions that we traditionally think of as nationalists. Just take one example of buy American. Nationalists will, of course, always favor American companies over foreign competitors. But what do you do in the case of, for instance, Goodyear Tires? Goodyear Tires, which came under controversy a while back for allowing employees to promote Black Lives Matter, but not to wear MAGA hats. Is a company like this something that we should support over its foreign competitors? What about the big tech companies? that are destroying free speech in America? Should we favor them over potential foreign competitors that might allow us to say things that we can't on American platforms? By the way, Darren, that is an argument I hear frequently from the Republicans who have big techs back in the antitrust battles here in the Congress. When I make effort to break up big tech, to stop the abuses in the marketplace from Amazon, the abuses of free speech from Facebook and Twitter, uh, the abuses of our data from Google. You know, you consistently see uh, Republicans, establishment Republicans stand up and make the argument, well, gee, Gates, do you want Alibaba to win? You know, do you want the do you want the Chinese options to prevail in the digital world? And, you know, if you if you want any semblance of Americanism, you just have to take the violations of privacy and data and our constitutional principles and wave the American flag while you're doing it. Yes. No, you, this gestures toward the core difficulty, the core tension that I address in the speech is it's, it's not just about specific companies. Ultimately, when you move up layer by layer, you run against the United States security apparatus itself, in some ways, the United States government itself, because these tech companies aren't only linchpins of the American economy, and therefore they can blackmail politicians by saying, oh, if you go against us, it's going to ruin the economy. These big tech companies are also a critical components of United States soft power from a national security perspective. It is precisely through dominance of Facebook, dominance of Twitter, dominance of Google, that the United States has such a comparative advantage in conducting influence operations overseas. And so anyone who goes against these tech companies will be undermining national security in the sense that it makes it more difficult for the spooks in the deep state to use these big propaganda machinery tools to implement some kind of coup overseas or some kind of influence operation overseas. And this is just one specific case of a larger issue, which is that if it means to be an American nationalist to support American companies over foreign competitors, when it's the American companies supporting Black Lives Matter and doing all this woke nonsense, the other companies foreign are just neutral most of the time. But in a more disturbing sense, you can look to the national security apparatus itself, which is now, as you've been covering better than anybody, has been weaponized against the American people, specifically MAGA people. And so all of a sudden, when the national security state says, hey, we need to go, here's our enemy now. We need to go after this person, this person, this person. We need you to sign up and make sacrifices for this and that. 
Are we going to be the battered spouses and sign up with the very institution that's been reconfigured to destroy us? And by the way, battered by the same assailants. What a lot of Americans don't see is it's exactly the same people, the deep state operatives who will do a stint at DOJ and then go work for Uber or then go work for Apple or Amazon. And then they show up in the Biden White House. Then they show up on the Federal Trade Commission. Then they show up on the Federal Election Commission. Then they're back to work at big tech. And there is this revolving door. And nobody has built an efficiency in that revolving door. I mean, it's always existed in Washington for generations, but no No one has optimized that quite like big tech. And so it's not like these are symbiotic beings. They are quite literally one being so frequently. Absolutely. And I think perhaps on a uh, forthcoming uh, podcast, we can just go in very specifically and talk about some of the key players of this revolving door infrastructure. I think the American people and your audience would be deeply interested in some of these examples. I'll just give one to give to give people a sense of how really this this drills down to the very biographies of the people involved. It's not theoretical. Take the example of someone like Ambassador Daniel Freed, whom I interact with sometimes on Twitter, always in a friendly and polite capacity, of course. But Ambassador Daniel Freed is celebrated as one of the architects of U.S. sanctions policy against Russia. He is a major figure, sort of NATO-adjacent figure. He now has a perch, among other things, at the Atlantic Council, which is essentially a NATO cutout. This guy is also one of the premier drivers of censorship on the internet. That's, in fact, been his project, censoring disinformation, of course, labeling it as Russian disinformation for the past several years. And so you have here encapsulated in a specific person, an architect of Russian sanction policy, a NATO stooge sitting at the Atlantic Council, whose primary project right now is shutting down free speech on the internet. And so, and of course, NATO is just a cutout of you know, US interests. And so how can we, even, even if it were, think theoretically, which it's not, even if it were in our national interest to do what NATO wants us to do as a matter of foreign policy, How can we be comfortable with that if that requires making common cause with the very institutions that are destroying free speech and destroying liberty here in the United States? It makes it very difficult to root for America in the sense of wanting the national security state to succeed when this is the very instrument that's been weaponized against us at home. And I think that's a real tension, a real problem inherent in um, the prospect of American nationalism, at least as it's um, maybe ordinarily understood. And there seems to be a great deal more visibility into that ingrained corporate wokeness and, and the tension that that builds against the virtues of American nationalism that I think we would all want to embrace. And that I, I certainly do embrace a concept of American nationalism, but certainly not, not as a tool of surrender to what corporations were. With Dr. Darren Beatty right now, publisher of Revolver.News, discussing the impact of the big speech he gave in Miami about this uh, intersection of wokeness and what we used to celebrate as the, the free market icons of American enterprise. Uh, And we're simulcast streaming right now, getting a lot of feedback on Instagram. Skip makes the point about Disney 
and, and uh, the wokeness there, and that being a big wake-up call. Uh, in Dr. Beatty's speech, he said, uh, can one be an American nationalist? Wokeness is deeply embedded, not only in the American culture, but the American economy and legal system, on account of the entire ecosystem developed to accommodate civil rights and disparate impact law. So Dr. Beatty, if, if this wokeness is as ingrained as you say, in the economy, the legal system, the education system, undeniably, what's the off-ramp? What's the way to cheer for America without having to surrender that which is so special about America? I mean, that's, that's really an important question. There's not an easy answer to that. I think ultimately, though, the answer is not to make some kind of allegiance with the very institutions that are bent on our destruction. I think we can attempt to infiltrate and course correct and improve these institutions. And we can also collaborate, band together and create parallel institutions. Um, but I-, I Are those mutually exclusive? Yeah. Are those strata or, or should they be uh, pursued no, in parallel? Uh, I, I think they're, they should be pursued uh, in conjunction with one another and have kind of mutually reinforcing synergies. Well, let's just take, um, I, I wasn't planning to go yeah. here, but what you said is so instructive on a lot of what's going on behind the scenes in the Congress right now, because there is this expectation that Republicans are going to take control. And, and there are some who believe that when we take that control, I mean, the first tool we ought to pick up is not the exacto knife, but the sledgehammer. And that we ought, I, I'm probably in the sledgehammer camp that we have to go after these institutions uh, that have been weaponized against our people and that, and that subtle reforms around the edges uh, continue the march towards uh, American demise, and we don't want to tolerate that. And, and then there's the school of thought that says, oh, no, 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 it, it is not a sledgehammer we must take to these institutions. We have to Trojan horse them. We have to convert them to our purposes. And, and at times, I don't know that those are can be pursued in parallel. I, I don't know that we can, like, you know, take over the FBI at the same time that we dismantle the FBI. And, I'm, again, I'm, I'm using right. that as a stark example. But, but uh, what would be your reaction? Right. I think, I mean, at this level of granularity, you have to look at it institution by institution. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, and I'm not, a, a, you know, a, a deep bureaucrat. I don't have decades of bureaucratic experience such that I could speak on it with tremendous authority. But what my sense is about uh, something like the FBI is it requires a much much deeper level of overhaul than can be achieved by just putting good guys here or there. And I think we'd really benefit from kind of in-depth studies of bureaucratic psychology. And just to give it an, you know, kind of an analogy, they say, okay, if you have a group of people attacking you, you don't have to destroy each person. There are just like one or two of the leaders that you need to destroy. And typically what happens is once that happens, the others fall in line or they run away. And my sense is in the bureaucracies, there are a handful of critical players who basically determine the trajectory. These people are likely those who have really deep institutional knowledge, who have been around for a long time. They may not at the very moment all formally exist as employees within the bureaucracy, but these are the kinds of people who have the capacity to 
implement a genuine course correction. The only problem is the people with this level of institutional knowledge and ability are typically so invested in the wrong course that they're not going to jump ship. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to take exception with that and, and disagree with you okay. to to say that the way to attack the bureaucracy is to take out some of the key players and the people who know how to make it work against the American people with with the greatest skill is like saying that the way to take out the cartels was to take out the cartel leadership or the way to take out Al-Qaeda was to take out the Al-Qaeda leadership. Like what, what we see is that these institutions are able to consistently produce people that have fidelity and loyalty to those institutions. So I don't believe that decapitation is a strategy. I, I, I'm more of the sledgehammer strategy and, and saying, you know, deconstruct that which has been weaponized against people that this is not an HR challenge we have it is a it is an institutional challenge um, but a, a critique of my method would be the success we saw in, in Loudoun County Virginia and Virginia at large when parents didn't show up to school board meetings saying end public education disband the school board shut down my local school they showed up instead and said this is an institution that I pay for with my money, and I'm here to demand that it work for me, not right. for all of you. And so, and we saw that that uh, be effective. I mean, do you? And I, so, I'll give you a chance to respond to that. Do you think that that you know um, the decapitation could ever be enough? Well, I don't know if decapitation is the right description. What? What I really meant to emphasize, I, I, and I don't mean that in the Steve Bannon way, by the way. Exactly. If, if anyone's, yeah. if anyone's, <laughs> I mean, I mean it in the HR from the HR standpoint. But go ahead. Yes, um, I'm not sure that's the right description of what I was saying. What I really meant to emphasize was that in order to do this effectively, you really do need people with real and deep and long-standing institutional knowledge. I suppose if the um, alternative is simply to full-on disband the FBI, uh, that could be an interesting proposal, but I'm not sure how realistic that is politically. And so, um, and of course, I, I have doubts whether it's realistic politically to, you know, change the course of the FBI at all, but I think it's probably a little bit easier to correct the institution than is disband it. And assuming that's the case, I think you do need people with real and deep institutional knowledge. And I think a problem is, is that most, if not all of the people with that level of knowledge who know where the bodies are buried. I mean, it's not just like, it's not just in, or even primarily a managerial sensibility. It's that my sense of DC and, and these bureaucracies is that the wheels turn on the basis of a very intricate and kind of arcane ecology of favors, IOUs, connections, leverage, what, who buried what body 10 years ago and how that shapes what these institutions are doing. Even the hierarchy within these institutions with the CIA being on top, then the FBI below it, and then the, D, the DEA below it. Sometimes these organizations are doing things and they don't understand why they're doing it because they're fulfilling some objective of an organization higher up in the hierarchy. Well, and this, so is a fair, this is a fair criticism you know, of Trump 
that he yeah. rolled into Washington with a New York Rolodex. And oftentimes right. those things did not pair well. He was he did not know who some of those people were, who he could, right. you know, sort of uh, send in to deinstitutionalize and, and de-weaponize these entities right. that are working against us. Uh, on on Rumble, there is a, there's a lot of talk that people are, are jumping platforms now because they're worried after we said sledgehammer and decapitate. Uh, Steph's worried that we're going to be shut off on some of our platforms. <laughs> Disco Duck says the FBI and CIA corrupts our elections. Nothing is worse. And I'm wondering, Darren, like, have we lived in the last election that the FBI wasn't involved in somehow manipulating? I mean, like in 2016, they tried to manipulate the election by creating evidence, altering evidence before a secret court to spy on the Trump campaign. In 2018, they tried to shape the election with the Russia hoax that they perpetuated and you know just went on ad nauseum about. In 2020, they tried to impact the election by telling Facebook and everybody else that the Hunter Biden laptop story showing deep compromise in the Biden family was Russian disinformation. And now in 2022, they're trying to shape these midterms with all of these raids and seizures and trying to like impose this air of criminality on everyone from like Jeffrey Clark getting his home raided to Mike Lindell being accosted at a Minnesota Hardee's. So, you know, it, it brings us uh, to, to really the principal point I wanted to discuss today, the, the, the big dark Brandon speech that we heard, the terrific piece at revolver.news that kind of breaks down what that means for the American people. But, but, but take a moment to just kind of cast the chapter of the movie you think we're in. Well, I think the Biden speech was certainly an inflection point. Um, if not substantively, then aesthetically. And the aesthetic choices matter, certainly at the level of a presidential speech. I think the um, further the regime gets from even embracing the pretense of being a free society governed by what they still sometimes have the gall to put as rule of law, the more they abandon even the pretext, I think the more we shift into an entirely new uh, phase within our regime. And I think that's basically what's happening with these raids. I mean, I'm still sort of caught up on the Mar-a-Lago raid, which I think is another real inflection point in the country's history because you're having a sitting president have his Department of Justice go after in this totally unnecessary, totally gratuitous, and totally aggressive and hostile uh, fashion against his presumptive rival in the upcoming presidential election. I mean, it's really unheard of territory. And now they're having the FBI go and raid and harass basically anybody who's uh, anywhere near Trump's inner circle, or it could be an active player, whether they're in the media, in politics, in business, um, on behalf of Donald Trump. So this really is, it's the, it's the security state acting as an instrument here, acting as a major player in shaping the contours of uh, future political activity in the United States. And more specifically, let's be very clear about what they're doing. They're doing everything they can to take Trump off the chessboard as a meaningful force in American politics, period. Well, and they're trying to pick a fight. I mean, think, think about where yeah. we were just a few months ago. 
You had Gavin Newsom and J.B. Pritzker, you know, measuring for drapes in the Oval Office. You right. had Buttigieg and Kamala Harris elbowing each other within the administration to seize right. the mantle of the of the Washington favorite in the 2024 Democratic nomination process that virtually everyone assumed would not include Joe Biden, right? right. And I think the Obama people who really run Joe Biden, who are still making all the decisions as he's, you know, kind of put down for nap time and given jello. Like those people realized that to preserve the Biden regime such that it is, they needed to go out and pick a fight. And they've clearly chosen this like MAGA branding as the offense yep. that they want to run. But you right. make the point at revolver.news in a piece I really encourage everyone to check out. Uh, and, and here's what you're right. If you are part of the middle, Ameri middle American middle class, there is nothing you can do to make yourself not a threat to the left's democracy except die. What do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, a, a rather forceful way of putting it, but I think it captures a real truth. And it's a truth that goes back to the communist or Leninist conception of a class enemy. Middle class Americans that don't, you know, that aren't transsexual or don't have some other sort of qualifier that puts them into the community, the coalition of the marginalized that has become the democratic bread and butter, but just normal middle class Americans who are law abiding, who have bourgeois norms, are class enemies of the regime. And therefore, the regime's only move is to eliminate them or to encourage the elimination of these people because they, they're just standing in the way of the total dominion of uh, our corrupt and illegitimate ruling class. And so you see, you see examples of this. I thought it was a very powerful exchange um, when Biden did his whole student loan forgiveness thing, and you had somebody confront Elizabeth Warren, some old uh, father, he said, well, look, we did it all the right way. You know, what are we suckers? What are we this? And she just laughs at him. And it's a very poignant exchange, but it, you know, Elizabeth Warren is kind of right. Elizabeth Warren, by the way, is someone who lied about her race to get into Harvard and go on to trajectory to be what she is in some bizarre sense she did it the right way she did it the way that's more in alignment of what our country is now the country is not something that rewards or sustains traditional bourgeois norms and so if you're someone like this poor father who you know made all of these sacrifices to quote unquote do the right thing and pay his way back into the system only to get screwed because biden uh uh, does this relief thing for everybody else, um, you're just not playing according to the new rules of the game. And so I think the the middle class as a class per se, but also the middle class sort of values and virtues yes. that are really made America great, those have no place in the new United States, which I always call the globalist American empire. Doing the right thing has no place in the globalist American empire. No good deed will go unpunished by the regime. And it's a very unfortunate position to be in, but 
you know, you don't, nobody wants to be a sucker. And that's why, you know, Revolver News, we've encouraged some things that, um, you know, some might find questionable. I think people should go the Elizabeth Warren route. If there's going to be institutional racial discrimination against whites in the form of affirmative action, I think whites should say they're a different race on any kind of application. Those, I, those I, I am here with Darren Littleflower Beatty of, uh, <laughs> of, of Florida. No, uh, you know, Darren, the, what you just said is the critical message that the American people have to get out of the dark Brandon speech. That when they label, you know, ultra MAGA, what they're really saying is that they want to confront traditional American values. They want to confront American greatness as, as deconstructionists to you know, the very nation that we've built and, and the nation that so many people are trying to break into as we're having this discussion today. And you draw an interesting parallel in, in the piece at revolver.news about like the people right now suffering in Jackson, Mississippi. Like Joe Biden's got all this vitriol for white America, MAGA America, middle-class America, people who live in the middle of the country, you know, whatever it is he's trying to virtue signal with this new offensive. And yet, meanwhile, you've got this overwhelmingly black city with a straight string of eight black mayors, like I think, you know, one of whom has some connections to these like ethno-nationalist um, impulses and, and organizations that want to drive all white people out of like basically the SEC states in the country. And uh, that failure seems to get Biden a lot less angry than like people who wouldn't want illegal immigrants coming into the country. So do you think that there's a political risk here that the counteroffensive uh, from the Biden administration, you know, leaves their flank unguarded and there's an opportunity for Republicans to say, hey, like, what are you actually doing for your people? Yes, I mean, there's always a political opportunity. It depends on the messaging. I think uh, there's very powerful messaging to be had on crime wave in the United States, on affirmative action, on the general descent of the United States into third world conditions, not only as a material matter, but again, as I was saying, as a matter of values and norms and expectations. Those are the kinds of things that are those unspoken aspects that really dictate how a society functions because everything can't be spelled out in terms of rules and laws. So much of how a society looks is predicated on the, the norms and expectations of the people in it. And once those corrode to the point that it's simply a kind of chaotic situation where you know everybody's disconnected and there's always an assumption of bad faith, which is, I think, very close to where the kind of the public square has become, uh, there's just a, a downward death spiral of, of civil society. And I think we're very close to that point if we haven't crossed the threshold already. Chaotic, bad faith, death spiral, certainly feels like the emotions in the word cloud one would observe from the Biden presidency. But you know what? It wasn't always this way, you know, just... A few years ago, there was optimism and productivity and success and unapologetic patriotism and nationalism and Americanism, and I certainly hope we get back to those days. The piece is at revolver.news. The speech got a great write-up at Epic Times. I encourage everyone to check out both, and thank you, Dr. Beatty, for joining us again on Firebrand Live. Thank you so much.
really is something you have got to check out that reporting. Now we're going to go to a segment on the show we call Florida Man. Florida Man Spotlight. In Fort Walton Beach, Florida, one of the places I always like to frequent is the Chick-fil-A on Mary Esther Cutoff. Fort Walton Beach is a town I lived in for a number of years where I practiced law. I know the owners of that Chick-fil-A very well. They're good folks, the Sexton family. And the Fort Walton Beach Chick-fil-A made some national news when a young employee of the restaurant rushed out to help a screaming woman holding a baby after a man grabbed her keys and tried to take her car. We've got the report from WEAR's Olivia Iverson. Take a listen. A crazy story out of Northwest Florida tonight. A Chick-fil-A employee being held a hero after tackling a suspected carjacker right in the restaurant's parking lot. And we've got that video showing the dramatic takedown to our Lacey Beasley in the Breaking News Center right now. Lacey, that's a wild video. Yeah, it really is, Lenise. Okaloosa County deputies provided it to us, and they tell us a man with a stick tried to carjack a woman who had a baby with her. But deputies say a fast reaction by a fast food worker saved the day. Wrestling on the pavement, you see this Chick-fil-A employee in the red shirt tackled the suspect, stopping him in the act. Deputies say the woman in the background holding the baby was the target, screaming for help. As the situation calms down a little, other employees and bystanders running up, and the employee stands, appearing to be unharmed. Then another woman enters the frame, angry and yelling at the alleged crook. Get a baby in her hand! How dare you! This all unfolding at the Chick-fil-A on Beale Parkway in Fort Walton Beach. Now the Okaloosa County Sheriff's Office arresting William Branch of Defuniac Springs. He's charged with carjacking with a weapon and battery after allegedly grabbing the car keys from the woman while wielding a stick. And the Sheriff's Office adding this on Twitter, a major shout out to this young man for his courage. Michael Gordon is that great Florida man who exhibited bravery and ensured that we would not tolerate that type of criminal behavior as a mother was working to probably just get some fantastic chicken nuggets, maybe a grilled chicken sandwich, who knows, maybe on the healthy side. Uh, but that uh, I think the message there is you try to rob us in Fort Walton Beach, not only will one of our restaurant workers come and beat you down in a parking lot, the bystanders in the restaurant will even come and shame you. So proud of my uh, once hometown, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. But we also are going to look a little broader throughout the world. Check out this new segment on Firebrand we like to call Around the World. Around the world. Mexico gets our attention today because they have sent out a guide for the migrants. That's right. We have uh, received this as a consequence of some uh, disclosure from Blake Masters. He is an Arizona man running for the United States Senate there. And he put out word that the Mexican government is selling residency cards to foreigners and then giving them a literal guide. You see it pictured right there on how to be a migrant going through Mexico on your way to the United States. 
here is the important takeaway. Mexico is a captive narco state, totally run by the cartels. The former presidents of Mexico even are having found to have taken just enormous bribes from the Sinaloa cartel. Those very cartels have figured out that moving people can be just as productive economically for them as moving drugs. And so they are in the human trafficking business in a huge way. And so the cartels are just inexorably fused with the government. Now the government wants a taste of the action. And so they sell these cards to the migrants coming through Mexico. They get money for it. And then they literally give them a guide on how to get to the United States and what to do to get there and what to say and what groups to encounter. So Mexico is not a valued partner right now in the human smuggling, drug smuggling operation. They are in purpose with the cartels. They are in concert with the cartels, and they've even put out a guide proving it. We'll have a lot more about what's going on on the border, the millions of people being released into our country. And you know what? A certain governor in the Sunshine State is sending some folks to Martha's Vineyard for a bit of a different kind of vacation. We'll have more on that soon. Thanks so much for joining us back on Firebrand Live. Make sure that you have that subscription renewed. Give us comments in the comments section, however you're listening. Give us that five-star rating. If you're listening on Apple iTunes, maybe you gave us that five-star rating a few months ago. You can actually do it again, and it will help our content reach more people. Thanks for joining us. Roll the credits.